believe in the creativity that comes from freedom to experiment. I don't believe that no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how expert someone is in the government, that they're going to be able to choose winners. China's doing some very impressive things, and they are investing billions of dollars in the technologies of the future, and the United States, I think, would be well-served to do more of that. The United States did do that in, you know, in previous decades, and I mean, everything from the internet to, you know, DNA sequencing, these are all things that are, you know, we all get to enjoy courtesy of the U.S. government. It's still happening, but it's, it's happening much less. I, I wish there was more investment. But China picks its winners. The government picks the winners. Yeah. And especially how the system has been getting more and more centralized, there's less and less room for dissent. It's just a recipe for making big, bold, bad bets. Thank you, Jonathan, for doing this. And we have had a couple of conversations before this call. But I guess for people who don't know you, give us a brief introduction about yourself and the journey that you have been uh, on for all these years. Sure. Well, I wish I my name is Jonathan Domsky. My business is Untangled Coaching. I help you untangle the clutter in your business and personal life. I've been an entrepreneur since I was 24 years old. And the tools, the platform that made me who I am today was a company called Kidorable. If you've ever seen umbrellas or rain boots that look like frogs and ladybugs and stuff like that, that's us. Oh, <laughs> and when did you start that business? So I start, I co-founded Kidorable with my wife in 1997. I was an accidental entrepreneur. I, I the week I graduated college in 1994, I was on a plane with a one-way ticket to China, and I spent <laughs> I spent the next 18 months there. Three weeks in, I met the woman who is uh, now my wife. We were engaged seven months later, and we were used to spending all of our time together. We just loved being together. And when I came back to Chicago, when she came uh, to the United States for the first time, we wanted to be able to keep being together. And it's hard to do that if you each get a job and you have two weeks vacation and to, to, to make that work. So we decided that we should go into business for, for ourselves. And that first year, I got a job as an administrative assistant, saved a little bit of money. She went to a local college, learned English and some computer skills. Quit my job after nine months. <laughs> we went back to China for three months. We talked to everybody we knew went to some export trade shows. We figured import-export would be a good way to get started since we didn't have any experience and have any money. We wanted to be able to go to China pretty often to be with family. And we came back with all sorts of products that had nothing to do with each other. We had beautiful silk scarves. We had pottery, all sorts of home decor items. We also had some fun umbrellas and kids' hangers. We went to the Chicago gift show the things that sold best were the kids' stuff, so we decided we're in the kids' business. Oh. And my wife, she's a graduate of the China Academy of Fine Arts. It's, it's China's premier art school. So she started designing products, coming up with our own styles. And within six months, we had invented the niche of fun, practical, unique children's accessories, things that all kids need, 
but that excite their imaginations and become part of their everyday play. Right. And there is so much to uncover there. So I'll uh, ask a step-by-step question. So I guess the yeah. first one would be when you were studying in college, the traditional path would be to graduate from college and then take a job and maybe uh, try for promotions and all those things. So what yeah. motivated you to take a one-way ticket to China? So I, st- I went to the University of Illinois and I started studying engineering. U of I is a very, it's a, has a very rigid engineering program. If you study engineering at U of I, you study engineering and that's just about it. And I wanted a broader education. Uh, the first semester, I, I, I had a lot of uh, AP classes in, in college, so I had some extra time. The first semester, I took a course in East Asian literature. The professor's, the professor's specialty was Chinese poetry. We spent half the class on that. I loved it. I decided, you know, I want a broader education. I, I could read about history and literature and uh, political science, all that sort of stuff on my own, but I didn't know anything about Asia. I thought it was interesting. So I decided to get a double degree in engineering and then also in Chinese language and civilization. So I started taking language courses, Chinese history, politics, art, all that sort of thing. And after a couple years, I realized I didn't want to be an engineer. I liked the math and the science, but I didn't like the engineering. So I read through the course catalog, put a little check mark next to every course that seemed interesting. And the vast majority of them were had to do with China and with economics. So my last two years in school, I went to summer school. I spent a summer in Taiwan, which was magical. I took 22 hours of courses my last two years each semester. Graduated in four years with a double degree in economics and Chinese. Wow. I'd had some scholarship money, didn't have any debt. I had $3,000 in the bank <laughs> and I decided I wanted an adventure. I wanted to perfect my Chinese language. I wanted to see the world, test myself. So that's what happened. I, like I said, I bought a one-way ticket. I, everything I owned was in my back, was, was, was in my backpack. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything planned. It was just me and my Lonely Planet guidebook. Oh, boy. <laughs> and when you were in China, was your plan to travel there till you had spent all your $3,000? Or did you plan on taking a job and maybe settling there for a few months? Yeah, so I had this vague idea. There, 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 there was about three months of traveling I wanted to do. There are all these, you know, every, every page in the Lonely Planet guidebook was dog-eared. I wanted to see all these places. <laughs> and three weeks in, as I said, I, I met the woman who's now my wife. And she's from a place called Hangzhou. It's a, it's a provincial capital, about an hour and a half drive southwest of Shanghai. That was my second favorite place in all of China. And that's where she was from. My original dream idea was that I would end up in Beijing, the capital and maybe I'd get a job as a journalist or something like that. I thought that'd be interesting. But when I got to Beijing, I, I hated it. <laughs> it's, I'm sure there's, there, there's 20 million people who live there, and I'm sure many of them love it. But it was yeah. just a big, dirty, unfriendly city. There was, there was no charm to it. I, I mean, the historical sites were amazing, but you know, I didn't want to be a tourist. I wanted to live there. So I decided to go back to Hangzhou. And when I was there, I found a job as an editor, translator, and writer for an English educational magazine. I found an apartment, and 
there's a beautiful city. It's, it's, it's supposedly where uh, silk was invented. It's oh. uh, if you have a romantic view of tea houses and lakes and old men with beards, that's what like it's a, uh, it's a special place. Wow. And this was 1994, right? It was 1994. You know, these days, a lot of people go to China. It's not unusual for people to from the West to, to study Chinese. And the city of Hangzhou is a city of 8 million people. In November, the end of November, I got my uh, residency card, which said you know, I could stay there and you know have an apartment in my name and not have to you know go to go to Hong Kong or Japan every three months to renew my visa. My visa was stamped number 28. Oh. So I was the 28th <laughs> foreigner to get a, oh, a permanent residency in, uh, in or, or uh, not permanent residency, but a, a long-term residency permit in Hangzhou. And <laughs> if any of them were American or European, I certainly didn't see them. They, 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 <laughs> and I, I traveled all over the city. I biked and walked hours every day. Uh, they must have been Korean or Japanese or something, but it was uh, it was pretty unheard of. Hmm. I would sit, you know, most Chinese at, at that time had never seen a Westerner before, and I would be taking a walk, or I, you know, and I'd be there'd be a little posse of children <laughs> <laughs> rallying me and shouting like "Hello, hello!" You know, they didn't know how to say anything else, but yeah. <laughs> and and how was the how was the entrepreneurial scene in China back then? Like, was it buzzing? Were there a lot of lots of companies starting, or uh, was it just the beginning of what we see right now? Yeah. So these days, China is the entrepreneurial capital of the world. I, I, I read there, there's a uh, there's a there's a series in the Economist magazine this week. I read that 50 percent of people in their 20s in China. Want say they want to start their own business. There, there, there's so much entrepreneurial uh, energy in China right now. When, when I went to 1994, when I went there in 1994, this was all just starting. There were no big businesses. Everything was still state. Do, it was still state do, uh, dominated. It was just starting that if you were the manager of a state-owned firm that was losing money, which almost all of them were that you would be able to, for very little money, purchase the firm and make it your own. Okay. In fact, most of the factories that we worked with back in the 90s, that's how they got their start. They, they were they, they, they were managers of state-owned firms and then had taken them over. And within a few years, I mean, everyone and his brother wanted to start a factory, literally. like <laughs> Two of the factories <laughs> that we worked with were started by the brothers of factories that we worked with. Everybody wanted to start a business. <laughs> But back then, everything was very small and uh, it was state-dominated. Mm. And I think when people write about China, they talk about the regulatory thing that the Chinese government did back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But I guess it's also a cultural thing. I was reading Phil Knight's uh, book, the founder of Nike, mm -hmm. uh, Shoe Dog, and he said that back in the 60s, it was almost like people didn't respect you if you were an entrepreneur. Yeah. And in China, it seems like ever since the government deregulated business, like the startup culture was just buzzing. Like Chinese yeah. people in general, in their families, there's not a stigma with starting businesses. So again, there's been a huge cultural shift. You know, for for decades under communism, 
entrepreneurship was vilified. I mean, you could literally go to, go to <laughs> you could go to jail yeah. for it. You know, people had their businesses, had, had everything that they owned taken away, and there, there was a lot of trauma. So when in the in the nineteen nineties, this was just starting to be reborn, and there were plenty of people who wanted to open a salon or a convenience store or something like that. But the idea of opening a factory that that was still a, a, a risky. That was still a risky idea. That the, the path of almost everybody that I knew back then was they took over an existing venture. They, they okay. took over something that already existed that was losing money forever. And uh, we're, we're with the magic of capitalism and private enterprise, we're able to turn it around. It was only later, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, where entrepreneurism became a religion in China, that, you know, something that was respected that everybody wanted to do. Hmm. And so you went to China, you came back with your wife, you decided that you wanted to start a business, but you had never done that before. So right. what were the first steps that you took to maybe reading books or meeting people, yeah. going to workshops? What were your first steps that you took to learn those skills? Yeah, so I had no business background. My wife had no business background. I, my parents are professionals. 100% of their friends are professionals. We didn't even know any business people. Uh, so this was not part of my background. But Avishak, I, I'm a personal growth athlete. I, I've read thousands of books, attended dozens of programs, and I seek answers. You know, I, I, unlike many people, I, I don't have an inner critic. There, there's, uh, there's no part of me that says, like, you can't do that. The, one of the core values that I've had in all of my businesses is believing in the potential of the company. Every problem could be solved. And sometimes that's given me, gotten me into trouble because some problems can't be solved. Yeah. But it's not knowing how to do something was never an impediment for me. I would go, you know, we'd go to a trade show and I, most of the time in a trade show, not a lot happens. You know, there's only, you know, there's only a couple hours a day when there's people who are spending time in your booth. So I would just wander around and I'd talk to everybody who would talk to me. I'd ask them questions. I'd, I'd look at their catalogs. I'd, I'd ask them about their sales process. And I'd learn that one step at a time. The, the real sea change that taught me how to be an entrepreneur. In, so we started the business in 1997. The end of 1999, I joined a group. These days it's called EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. At that time it was called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization. We're not all oh, so dude. young anymore. <laughs> uh, they dropped the young. But EO puts you in a forum with eight to 10 other entrepreneurs, non-competing. And every single month you share what are your challenges. People present and, and they share experience. If you have a question, like for something as simple as, does anyone have a, an accountant they could recommend to, I have this tricky employee situation, how do I deal with it? EO transformed my life. They, they have all sorts of learning programs, speakers, you could see people on every different topic. The biggest thing I ever did in my entrepreneurial journey was to join a program called Birthing of Giants. It was run uh, by Vern Harnish, who is the founder of EO. It's called something else now, I think EMP or something like that. It's on the MIT campus. Okay. It's a three-year program. You meet four days in a once each year for, 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 for three years. And it teaches you all the stuff you need to learn to be an entrepreneur. No one teaches us these things. Even if you study business in school, they don't 
they don't te- they don't give you the right books. They right. don't teach you how to actually hire someone. They don't teach you how to actually manage a team. You know, they teach you case studies, and that's great for if you're working for a larger company. But if you're starting your adventure, they're they're all the wrong books. And and, and BOG and EO it showed me what some of those books are, and it was transformative. <laughs> wow! And so, if you want to start a clothing business today, and if you want to drop ship, it's fairly easy. You make yeah. a Shopify, you build a Shopify website and you go to Alibaba, you download those pictures, upload them in Shopify. And basically, I guess yeah. you can start a store within 24 hours yeah, and you can start easier. selling with Facebook ads. Right. How was that process different back then when there was no infrastructure and even the Chinese-American partnership in terms of manufacturers there, sellers here, that was not built in? Yeah, so it's a lot easier now. <laughs> everything's everything can be outsourced everything's automatic there's you don't even have to go to the trade shows anymore you can just research yeah. online and, and have everything uh sh- shipped over so we started our business in 1997 this was the very beginning of the internet and nobody relied on it most of our customers didn't have a computer we started i started writing my invoices on an electronic typewriter there there, there was Ooh. uh, uh <laughs> It was a it was a very different world. When the way that people found out about products was not by doing an online search, it was by people walking into their stores. So we built our business on a model that barely exists anymore. We went to trade shows, which again are, are a shadow of what they used to be. We would go to trade shows, we would get a dozen new customers. And then we would ask each of those customers, who's your favorite sales rep? This is someone who gets in their car and drives to their store and shows them the the lines that they represent and uh, and, and sells to, to them. So we go to the Atlanta gift show, we go to the New York gift show, we go to you know San Francisco, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, all these places. And each place we went, we'd get a handful of customers to establish a base. We would find a sales rep who represented us, and sometimes three or four, sometimes thirty or forty other manufacturers. And that's how we built our business on small, independent mom and pop stores. And you know, I mentioned a moment ago that I believe every problem could be solved. Yeah. The people that we, the businesses that we built our business on, wholesaling to small independent retailers, they've been struggling and going out of business slowly for 30 years. And then when the Great Recession hit 2009, they were going out of business quickly. It was, mm-hmm. it was heartbreaking. We, every single week we'd receive letters like, we regret to inform you that this is our 35th and final year in business. Just, they were going out of business left and right. And this was also the same time, you know, the late 2000s when Amazon and all flash sale sites and all this online competition started coming. Mm-hmm. We had never sold directly to consumers, we, we'd always been a wholesale company. And because I believed in the potential of Cadorval that every problem could be solved, we could protect these retailers from the internet. We could protect these retailers <laughs> from the economy. But I wish it turns out that uh, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so it took us uh, a couple of years of, took us a couple of years of losing money to figure out that we can't build a business on a dying industry and we had to pivot to selling direct to consumer and to major accounts like Amazon and Macy's.com. 
And so we, 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 we relate to that, but that's the only way to build a business right now, I believe. Hmm. And how has Amazon impacted your business? <clears throat> so in the beginning, it was hard, not because they impacted us directly. Uh, we'd started selling to, to them in a small way right around maybe 2008, something like that. But it was they were dramatically impacting our customers. Years ago, I, I heard an interview with Bill Ford of uh, Ford Motor Company. He was president of Ford Motor Company back then. And the interviewer, the, the interviewer asked him why Ford invested in Zipcar, you know, car, car rental. He said, isn't that... Yeah going to hurt your business because people are going to rent cars instead of instead of buying them. This was before Uber, but the same idea of, you know, renting mobility instead of owning it. And Bill Ford responded, it's happening whether we like it or not. So we may as well like it. And that's how I started treating Amazon. It's they're here whether I like it or not. You know, it doesn't doesn't do me any good to say I wish Amazon didn't exist. They're they're, they're here. So we may as well like it. So after a couple of years of, <laughs> of resisting it, we embraced them. They're, they're our largest customer today. We, we, we sell wow. both a, a vendor and is a, a seller on their, uh, on their platform. They're, they're probably half our sales. Oh. And instead of trying to protect independent retailers, we support them. We give them, you know, we, 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 we give them, Displays, we give them a guarantee that products are going to sell. If they don't sell, they could return them. We, we, we try to be a good wholesaler for them. But we've embraced the direct-to-consumer model and the, the big players like Amazon. It's, uh, it's just too hard to have a profitable business on yeah. stores that don't sell very much and <laughs> don't want you to sell to anyone else within 50 miles. Right, yeah. And... To give us an idea, how big is Kidorable at this point? Maybe in terms of number of employees or revenues? Yeah, Kidorable sales these days is about a million dollars. It's a little bit smaller than it was during the heyday of the small independent retailer. Right. And since you have gone through this journey back in 2009, and maybe the same thing is happening in 2020, where yeah. the trend of online selling and buying has accelerated due to yeah. the coronavirus thing. Yeah. And so what would be your advice to businesses that are struggling? And I guess it's more relevant to restaurants now because, I mean, e-commerce, there was already a trend of people buying online more and more. Right. But delivery, people are skeptical about food delivery, but then all of a sudden coronavirus hit. And now you know that it's a legitimate business model. Like it's yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. So using the comparison of 2009, when all these independent retailers are going out of business, and if they were going out of business in 2009, better believe me, they're going out of business now. It's, uh, they've been crushed. It's 10% of what, what it was just a couple of years ago. And a couple of years ago, it was a lot less than it was 10 years ago. But we're in the fun, practical, unique children's accessories business. And kids are still having birthdays. Christmas still comes once a year. People are still buying. The market's still there. They're just not going to the same sales channels that they went to before. And I, I think it's the, this is outside my expertise, but I, I, I presume it's the same for food. People are still eating 
yeah. <laughs> you know, people are still having birthdays and celebrations, although maybe smaller and at home with the pandemic. So the challenge for a, a, a restaurant, let me rephrase it. I think the wrong challenge for a restaurant is how do I get people, how do I get butts in seats, mm. which is how they used to have, which used to be the metric that, you know, meant profitability in the restaurant business. Sure, that that's happening, but it's it's just so hard. You're, you're swimming upstream with that. But people are still eating. How could you deliver food to their door? How could you have food ready where they're ready for it? And maybe that means delivery. Maybe that means some sort of subscription program, you know, meal of the week. We just uh, send it out to you. Maybe that means selling through other channels like grocery stores. I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting challenge. Hmm. But and uh, the market's still there. It's, but it's, it's the channel has shifted. Right. And I want to get back to China because under the Trump administration, the US China trade war escalated. And yeah. so because of that, what do you think are the new barriers for American entrepreneurs? Because they are used to this model for the past 20, 30 years, where if they have an idea, they can outsource the production to China. Yeah. And right now, maybe that is a little bit more difficult. And uh, yeah, so how do you resolve that? Yeah, it's tricky. So the political environment is uncertain. And it was, <laughs> it was certainly uncertain the last four years because you never knew when you know, policy was going to change. For better or worse now, I think there's more stability, but there's there's such distrust and there's such antagonism. Some industries, some businesses were put out of business by the tariffs because it just made it impossible for them to compete. In most of the consumer products, we all have that blanket 10% increase in tariffs in the United States. So that makes life more difficult. But you know, extra ten percent of uh, cost of goods sold—it's it's undesirable, but it's not the end of the world for, for 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 most businesses, and it doesn't seem like there's any hurry that that's going to go away. It's tricky though because China is not always the most China is not always the lowest cost producer these days. There, there's plenty of mm. com- countries with lower labor costs, but no country matches. China's combination of infrastructure, efficiency, being able to source components and all that sort of thing. So you see a lot of companies like, like Apple, they're doubling down in China. They're opening new factories. It, it remains to be seen whether that'll be a, a smart strategy or not. But it's yeah. still a compelling place to do business. Hmm. And since you are a wholesaler and you have all these suppliers and on the retail and you have all these customers, so are you seeing seeing any trends from any other countries other than China where you see this emergence of maybe manufacturing, some of these emerging countries where the cost of labor is low and maybe a certain segment of the population is scared? Yeah. So I, I, when it comes to low-cost low manufacturing, especially around apparel and stuff like that, I, I think you're seeing bigger market share from countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam, maybe Indonesia, some others. But the lion's share is still with China. For, for, for many people, diversifying away from China doesn't mean leaving China. It means having an alternate source of supply. But there's, it's still just so much more efficient and, and, and easier to, to, to produce in China and ship than it is from a country that's cheaper labor, but that maybe it takes an extra three weeks to get it to port. Or maybe they have some production delay or some increase in cost because they 
can't access the molds or the silk screens or something like that? Yeah, I guess the problem with uh, sanctions is that the infrastructure that is there in China, it has been built over the past 30 years. And maybe you cannot replicate yeah. that in the next two years. Maybe it's a long-term play where if yeah. if you keep on investing in regional companies and maybe investing in emerging markets, maybe in the next 20 years, you'll see an uptick in their own manufacturing abilities. Yeah. But it's not a one or two year play, at least. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you talked something very interesting about business schools and how they don't teach you the real skills that an entrepreneur needs on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And so what would be your recommendations of books or workshops that a young entrepreneur yeah. should consume? Sure. So if you already have a business with at least a million dollars in sales, I, I cannot recommend EO highly enough. To have a community of fellow entrepreneurs who only want the best for you and who share experience, it's so powerful. And if you can do, I, I think the successor program to Birthing of Giants is uh, EMP, I forget what it stands for. I would certainly do that. But in the meantime, there's some essential reading books for any entrepreneur. In no particular order, read The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Yeah. The E-Myth talks about how to systematize your business so that you're working on your business instead of in your business. It talks about the miracle of McDonald's. The miracle of McDonald's is not that the food's so great. It's not. The miracle of McDonald's is that fries taste the same in London as they do in you know, as they do in Beijing. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an, for people who have no skill and no prior experience. Right? These are empty level jobs and they're exactly the same. Michael Gerber teaches you how to do that. When you start to hire employees, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Pat Lencioni. This book changed my life. I used to be a terrible manager. I used to have meetings that, you know, we thought we discussed something, but then there was never any follow-up. But the Five Dysfunctions of a Team are first, lack of trust. If a team doesn't trust each other, if they don't feel comfortable saying what's on their minds, then that leads to a fear of conflict. And if there's a fear of conflict, then ideas aren't aired and there's a lack of commitment. Why would I be committed to something when I knew it was a terrible idea all along, but I was Mm -hmm. afraid to to tell you about it. When, When there's a lack of commitment, there's a lack of accountability. You can't hold me responsible for that. I never committed to it in the first place. And when there's a lack of accountability, there's an inattention to results. And then the company just doesn't reach its goals. It's a transformational book. Scaling Up by Vern Harnish talks about the nuts and bolts of how to run a business. And the two most important tools that Vern taught all of us in the EO community is first to have a regular communication rhythm. And that's, and the most important part of that is the daily huddle. Every single day, five minutes, it's a standing meeting. You don't want everybody to get too comfortable. Stand up and everybody, whether it's a senior leadership team or in a smaller company, everyone who, everyone in the company, maybe all the department heads, everybody stands up, there's a whiteboard and you say what you're planning on doing today what you're planning on doing the next week and where are you stuck? And you write it on the board. And then the next day they say, same time every day, 
what am I working on today? What am I working on this next week? Where am I stuck? And if there was something that they said they were going to do yesterday, the manager or whoever's running the meeting could just has a easy, non-confrontational, non-awkward way to say like, hey, what about this project? Or did that order get out the door? And the person says either yes or no. It, it drives accountability. It drives communication. And instead of having to say the same thing in five different conversations throughout the day and people interrupting you and uh, destroying your concentration and productivity all day, it's just once. And if someone has a question and it's not, did you know that the building's burning, you should run, then it can wait till the next day. It's, it's huge for productivity. On the other end of that is a quarterly strategic planning meeting for everyone in the company to get on the same page for what are the company's core values and purpose. If there's some misalignment with that, what do we want to focus on in the next quarter to, to, to get back into alignment with our purpose and our core values? Where's the company going? What's its BHAG? What's its big, hairy, audacious goal? What are its three-year goals? What are its one-year goals? And then the heart of the quarterly strategic planning meeting is talking about the quarterly goals. And just as important as it is to know what are the top five goals as the company are to know what are not the top five goals of the company. If everything's important, then nothing's important. Right. And in any company, there's all this gossip and backtalk, like, why didn't they do the whatever? Well, we didn't do the whatever because these are our top five goals. And this other thing, as desirable as it may be, it's not the most important thing. And we'll get to it when we get to it. But if doing this thing over here means we can't do these, then we're never going to move forward as a company because everyone on the same page. And then the last part is to have a weekly management meeting. So again, there's a daily huddle, what's going on today. Yeah. There's the quarterly strategic planning meeting, big picture, where are we going? And then a, a weekly management meeting where each manager, each department has three to five goals that they're working on for the quarter that build up to the quarterly goals, that build up to the annual goals, that build up to the three-year goals, that build up to the BHAG. And it's the same questions. What are you going to do the next week? What did you do last week? And where are you stuck? And that's how to grow a business. It's really as simple as that, having these the, the, the discipline of these, of, of these habits, of these practices. There's so many others. I mean, for hiring, who by Jeff Smart tells you how to actually, actually hire for the people that you need and not to be surprised after you hire them that they're a bad cultural fit or they don't have the skills that you want or you know their their their, their goals are, are separate from the company. Ask me a topic of business and I'll be happy to recommend a book. But th those are the ones that I would recommend to any entrepreneur. Scaling up, Emeth, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and Who. Wow, I love that you discussed all those books in so much detail. Do you take book notes when you're reading them? <laughs> so, like I said, I, I've read thousands of books. Most of them are forgettable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most of them, if I get one good idea, then that's, you know, it's worth a couple hours reading the book. But there, there's a small number, maybe a dozen, 15 books out of those thousands that just transformed the way that I view my life. And for those, I have write-ups for all of them. I have oh. write-ups for myself to make sense of them. And I have write-ups so that I could train. I'll, I'll, I'll share a story. The One of those 15 or so books that just transformed my life is a book called The Outward Mindset. Okay. It's written by an organization called the Arbinger Group. I highly recommend it to anyone. The, the Outward Mindset 
talks about how, it, it says about how we treat people, how we act in the world. The opposite of an outward mindset is an inward mindset. That's what most of us have. Right. With an inward mindset, we care about our goals. We care about what's important to us. And the, to the extent we think of other people, it's as objects. They're obstacles who get in our way. They're vehicles to accomplish our goals. And if they're not in our way and they're, they can't help us, then they're in irrelevancy. We don't care about them at all. That's how most people treat most people. That's how most people treat their employees and, and, and their customers. The opposite of an inward mindset is an outward mindset where you see other people as real human beings whose needs, objectives, challenges are of equal importance to our own. You treat people as objects. You treat people as vehicles to accomplish your own goals, obstacles that are in your way or irrelevancies that don't matter at all. They push back. And it means that no one could accomplish their own goals. But if you want to stay at the top of the hill, or if you want to climb to a higher peak, and you ask me what I want, and then I tell you, and you actually help me do that, then it just opens up this whole world of possibility that we can uh, accomplish our common goals together. Now, when I read this book, I, as I was reading it, I thought, like, how, how did I never learn this before? This is incredible. This is applications in every aspect of business and family and, and relationships, personal life. And the book had all this, these stories, and it, it changed my outlook. It changed my mindset. But there was almost nothing in the book that told me what to do with that mindset. Okay. And because I'm a personal growth athlete, because I'm a coach and I have the time and inclination to do these things, I took 17 pages of notes from the book, 17 pages oh. of notes of just like, this is good. This is important. But like, what do I do with it? I don't know how to teach this. I don't know how to apply this. And every day for four months, for about 10 minutes, I'd read my notes and I'd ask myself, what the heck do I do with this? I know this is important. And then after three and a half months, I finally had an insight like, oh, that's how I need to organize it. And within a week, I had developed a workshop around the, or around the tool and, and now it's something that I use. Probably a week doesn't go by that it doesn't come up in, in, in coaching, one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one coaching through one scenario or another. Wow. So, so that's, that's the answer to your question. Do yes, you, I do you notes, have those, yeah. Do you have those detailed book notes in a digital format somewhere? So for all of the tools that I teach, I develop a worksheet mm. that can be worked on individually or taught as part of a workshop or just talked about uh, informally in a one-on-one -on -one session and i'd be delighted to share that outward mindset worksheet with your audience wow that would be awesome <laughs> and i was i was just going to i just went to your website and i was reading all these testimonials from all these people you have coached and they all had beautiful things to say about your coaching so say for example who doesn't know what untangled coaching is and for what kind of audience it is can you give us maybe a story or a step-by-step -step process of how how somebody with a problem X reaches out to you and how your coaching helps them solve those problems? Sure. So the way that most people find me is by listening to a podcast like this or a referral from someone who's worked with me. The, the first step would be to go to my website, www.untangled-coaching.com. Don't forget the dash. Go to the <laughs> contact page and say, Jonathan, let's talk about working together. The first thing we'll do is have a clarity call. It's a free 
half hour call, I talk to you about what is the challenge that you're working on. If you, what, 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 what was it that made you want to talk to me or, or what kind of conversation did you have with Abhishek that, you know, made him think that we should be talking to each other. And I find out about them. Some people know exactly what they want to work with, what they want to work on. Most people don't. They know that something's missing. They know that uh, they want to improve something, but they can't really put their finger on it. A question that I like to ask during these clarity calls is, let's pretend it's a year from now. It's January 24th, 2022. Yeah. And you just crushed it this year. It was fantastic. Everything that you wanted to happen, <laughs> happened. Tell me about it. What did you accomplish? What's different in your life now than it is then? And that usually helps people to imagine, think where they want to go. Right. Sometimes that's still not enough. And then we have to go and do some work about core values and purpose. What are the things that motivate you? Everyone has core values. Everyone has purpose. Most people can't articulate them. And there's exercises and there's worksheets that I'll take you through to help you identify what is your core value? What, what's your purpose? And once you know what those things are, it's much easier to know what you want. So my process is first just to listen. I untangle the clutter that's obscuring your best, most authentic self. And then I help you see a path on how to live your beautiful future. And we do it through these tools. We do it through, you know, if I work primarily with entrepreneurs. If the thing that's obscuring your best authentic self is that the people you've hired suck. <laughs> you know, then, we, then we talk about how to hire right, the right people or how to manage people better. If what's, if what's holding you back is that you're conventionally successful, but your heart's just not in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about purpose. I lead you through an exercise to identify what are your core values? What are, what is your purpose? How can you express that better in your with your current business, your current platform, or maybe it's time to start the next new chapter in your life? You know, Simon Sinek, you may be familiar with him. He is yep, uh, yeah. author of uh, Start With Why. Yeah. He's a huge TED Talk with like 50 million views. Yes. He talks about something called the, the golden circle. And at the outside of the golden circle is your what. And, and Simon Sinek, he's very dismissive. Of, of the what, you know, everybody knows what you do. Nobody cares what you do. More important than that one level in is your how. That's your core values, your unique selling proposition, the things that makes your company special. And then at the center of that golden circle is your why, your purpose, why this company exists in the first place. And for a company, for a product, that makes a lot of sense. But Abhishek, you are not a product. You're a human being. Your life is the what. Right. You can't have a satisfying life without being in alignment with your purpose, with your why, with your with your how, with your core values. But it's not enough. Right. You know, Simon Sinek tells a story of an Italian coffee maker company, La Marzocco, and I don't remember what it is exactly, but La Marzocco's why is something like bringing people together for great conversations, and and co great coffee is just how they do it. If you share their why. If you share their how, if you share their core values, working for La Morzoko, it might just be the greatest job you ever had. But let's pretend that you hate coffee. 
<laughs> right. You're a tea drinker. Coffee's bitter. Like, why would anyone want to drink coffee? It's never going to make you come alive. You're never going to love selling coffee makers. Let's say that for you, sweet buttery goodness is where it's at. You love cakes and cookies. Work for a bakery. Work for a coffee company. That's going to make you come alive. That's going to make your eyes shine. It's going to make your heart sing. And that's part of the work that I help clients do is find out what makes their heart sing. Wow. And once you've found that, we have to talk about the nature of happiness. We need to talk about how to change your reality. Any mm. thought that causes you stress, any thought that causes you suffering comes from you looking at the way things are right now and not liking it. But I was like, all there is is now. Life is just an endless series of now, 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 now. When the future comes, it will come now. If you're remembering the past, either a great memory or a painful memory, you're remembering it now. So we need to look at the way things are right now, embrace it exactly as it is. See reality not as an enemy, but where could any of us start but where we are right now? Look at that. Embrace it. And it doesn't mean that things... You can't change things. It doesn't mean things can't be better. Have a vision right. for how you want things to be different. And then look, what's missing? And then ask, what's the action I need to take that's going to bring me closer to my vision? And at each step in the journey, embrace things exactly as the way they are now. Compare it to your vision. See what's missing and take that action. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that I do with clients. You know, the... I wish the, the reason why people watch a podcast like this one is for, you know, for entrepreneurs or would be entrepreneurs who are watching this is because they think, you know, if I could just learn like one thing that can make my business better, it'll, it'll be an hour well spent. And I have one last question. Yeah. Uh, what makes American capitalism different from Chinese capitalism? That's a, that's a big question. So, in American capitalism, in most industries, more and more, for the worse, I would say, there is one or two dominant, one or two or three or five dominant firms. But there's also this bubbling entrepreneurship. You know, we talked earlier that it's easy to start a business with the technological technological tools of the regulatory environment. It's, it's, it's very easy to get started these days. In China, there's national champions that are state-owned. Even if they're not state-owned, there's still a high degree of state control. And there's huge swaths of the economy that are just off-limits. And at the same time, there's this huge bubbling up of entrepreneurial vigor. There's, there's tremendous competition. There's far more competition in consumer products and, and the, the everyday purchases that people make in China than there is in the United States. That's something that's new. But in the commanding heights of the economy, it's just one or two big state firms. In the United States, there's more economic freedom. If you want to do something, you do it, and it's relatively easy. In China, everything needs state approval. You need to have specific approval to do any kind of uh, a business venture. If you want to branch out into a new 
uh, new category, you need a specific approval in that. You know, the, the, the biggest difference in the environment, I'd say, is this. In the, in the United States, they tell you what's not allowed, and then you're allowed to do anything else. Yeah. And if it bumps up against, you know, and, and if you do something that no one thought of before, they're like, oh, we don't like that. Then they'll, you know, talk about regulating it. In China, it's the opposite. Nothing's allowed unless it's been approved. Oh, <laughs> right. And there has been a lot of talk about America versus China in terms of business, in terms of GDP. And since you have had an experience in both of these countries, according to you, which form of capitalism is the one that will produce more value in the long run in the next 20 to 30 years? Well, time will tell. <laughs> but I believe in the creativity that comes from freedom to experiment. I don't believe that no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how expert someone is in the government, that they're going to be able to choose winners. China's doing some very impressive things, and they are investing billions of dollars in the technologies of the future. And the United States, I think, would be well-served to do more of that. The United States did do that in, you know, in previous decades. And I mean, everything from the internet to, you know, DNA sequencing, these are all things that are, you know, we all get to enjoy courtesy of the U.S. government. That's still happening, but it's, it's happening much less. I, I wish there was more investment. But China picks its winners. The government picks the winners. Yeah. And especially how the system has been getting more and more centralized, there's less and less room for dissent. It's just a recipe for making big, bold, bad bets. Mm. Right. Add into that all the demographic issues. You know, China's getting old before it gets rich. Yeah. There's all these contradictions. I would, I would still bet on, I still think it's the American century. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. This was superb. And do you have any parting thoughts or maybe information you would like to give and maybe I didn't ask a relevant question? Uh, we can do that. The question at the heart of all the work that I do, Abhishek, is what is it that you've learned to accept in your life that you would have never consciously chosen? What, what have you learned to accept in your life that you would never consciously chosen? You know, I used to believe that the most important choices we make in life are who we marry and what we choose for a career. Add in the hand you've been dealt, where you're born, who your parents are, your natural abilities, and the, the course of your life is set. But as important as these things may be, and they've certainly been important in, in shaping my life, I've come to realize they're not nearly as important as the choices that we make after those decisions have been made. If you were to ask me 10 years ago, <clears throat> what are the most important choices I made in my life? Without hesitation, I would have said, getting on a plane with a one-way ticket to China the week after I graduated <laughs> college in 1994, seven months later, getting engaged, and how that led to the life of entrepreneurship that shaped who I am today. But I no longer think that our most interesting stories are youthful adventures. The, the biggest choice that I ever made is when I chose to believe that life is a curriculum perfectly designed for me to work out my purpose, to look at any situation in life and ask, what is it that I need to learn? Who is it that I need to be? And what is the action 
that I need to take. And I encourage you to ask those same questions.